This week on the Saber.com podcast, a look at the Virginia basketball team's 5-0 start in ACC play, including an offensive masterpiece against Clemson. In the football segment, the receivers are under the microscope. And in the music segment, our own Jeff Sweatman tells us about a John Prine tribute album. Let's go. The online source for the serious Wahoo fan, thesaber.com. And we're back again with another thesaber.com podcast. Jeff Sweatman, your host. Musically speaking, for our final segment today, we'll talk about a John Prine tribute album that uh, I'm putting together. So we'll get into that as uh, the legendary singer-songwriter passed away this past April. Crops up from time to time on the Saber.com message boards uh, when things tend towards the music realm. But we've got uh, Chris Wright and Chris Horn on the line, and we're going to get right into the big wins this week for the who's on the basketball court. It was over 80 points, both games. Well, 80 to 68, I went over Notre Dame at home and then on the road at Clemson, who was ranked more uh, highly than UVA, which has got to be pretty rare uh, when those two teams meet over the years, but it was an 85 to 50, pretty much textbook performance by the who's in that game down in South Carolina. So Welcome in, gentlemen, and this is Tony Bennett's 12th season at UVA, as uh, David Teal put online uh, the other night. In his first 11 seasons, the Cavaliers had two games with five double-digit scores, and uh, the game at Clemson is the third time they've done that in the last four games. So the firepower there, uh, as we expected, scoring-wise, and now the uh, the defense is catching up, it looks like. So what do you think of uh, that performance, uh, well, both of them this past week? Yeah, well, I mean, it was it's fun. Uh, the Clemson game was just um, uh, start, starting with the most recent <clears throat> was uh, the offense to me. I mean, obviously the defense is important because, you know, Virginia has to rely on this defense. The defense has to be there for this program to be successful. But the, the offense with five players scoring in double digits in three of the past four games, that, that speaks a lot especially with uh, UVA's typical low possession uh, contest. So they had 58 possessions against Clemson and um, scored on the majority of those. And then, of course, they had the the five guys in, in double figures. And Reese Beekman had eight, so he was close to, to reaching double figures himself. But, yeah, I thought especially the second half, uh, the way they answered, because, you know, Clemson was able to close with an 8-0 run towards the end of the first half. And then – uh, they added another bucket to start the second half, so that kind of gets it to within 14. And now Clemson, you know, they had a, they had a little bit of a crowd there, so it's kind of starting to get a little bit, as Thomas Walter Tensai said after the game, it's starting to, you know, it felt a little bit more normal finally with some crowd there. So you know, the crowd's getting kind of ramped up and things like that. But they answered with a, a 10. A UVA was able to answer with that 10 nothing run, which which I thought was a thing of beauty. I mean, you had the shooting with Hauser and Huff making back to back threes, and then you had the the transition buckets, which UVA, you know, it doesn't get discussed a lot, but they they are able to convert in transition. And I thought Beekman uh, did a great job on, you know, pushing it in transition and converting uh, a layup. Uh, Kiahe Clark did the next, did the same thing on the very next possession. Uh, when he got a steal, he pushed it up, had a nice con- under control short jumper, knocked it down. And then, um, you know, so obviously, you know, that kind of, uh, you know, UVA punched right back there. And then the, the rest of the half, it was just a, a nice mix. I mean, obviously the shooting stands out, but uh, ball movement was was on point, you know, even when um, the, the basket maybe didn't uh, uh, 
maybe when the basket didn't fall uh, or the, the buckets weren't didn't fall, they were able to like um, you know make some hustle plays and 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 wind up uh, with some points that way. But obviously the 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 shots were falling with what was it nine of nine uh, from three to start the start the second half, which is just phenomenal. But again, great ball movement and just a, a great balance on offense. And yeah, that was that was uh, a joy to see. And I know Coach Bennett was talking about that he was happy to see that the defense, uh, you know, clamped down in the second half and and really answered the bell as well. So a lot to be happy about for Virginia, and we'll see if they can continue this play kind of moving forward. You said back-to-back. I, I was going to tell you, you left out seven other to-back-to-back-to-back because to back, to back, to, <laughs> they, made, they made nine three-pointers in a row, which is crazy. Well, and, you know, the announcers like to talk about, oh, the team's on a – 5-0 run or whatever and uh wouldn't you like to start every game on a 31 to 7 run <laughs> like the whole first half was a run <laughs> Clemson didn't get into double figures until there was like two minutes left in the half yeah oh, they made yeah. a little flurry at the end of the first half to you know kind of make it some window dressing to look a little better they ended up with like 17 and a half I think so yeah yeah 33 17 and a half and they I think they were like you said uh Chris on a 10-0 run there to end the half but that made <laughs> They were still down 33-17. So, yeah, I don't know. The announcers on the ACC Network were talking about how the the coach of Clemson should just kind of treat this as a practice since they didn't have much practice time leading into this. Did you see some signs of that in the second half? Um, You know, Clemson did score 33, but then UVA scored 52 in the second half. So, uh, you know, Chris Wright, we talked last week about those constants in the lineup from a a couple years ago where you knew certain guys were going to score about 15 a game then where were the other 15 or 20 points going to come from that you needed with that really solid defense? And if you can have four or five guys in double figures, that really helps, doesn't it? I mean, they're going to have five guys in double figures, you know, three of the last four games on the amount of possessions they play. (laughs) That's hard, Matt. That's hard to play against. It just is because like you can't really pick your poison, so to speak, because everybody's doing things well when that's happening. So um, and then you're, you're getting some support pieces as, uh, in, in addition to that, you know, Walter Tensai had a good game and uh, Beekman had another good game and yeah, they're rounding into form on the offensive end. And I think they're 37 and one now, uh, if I remember the number, right. When they score 80 points or more in the Tony Bennett era and three point efficiency has a lot to do with that. And when you looked at this roster coming into the season and potential lineups, particularly when Trey Murphy became available, it was like, well, they could potentially at times put four to five guys on the floor at all times who shoot 37, 38, 39% or better from three. When they all get hot, like they <laughs> nine in a row, that's 27 points in about eight minutes. That You're not going to beat Virginia if they're scoring 27 points in eight minutes. It just, even with this year's defense being somewhat inconsistent, which we saw in the second half, there was some defensive inconsistency, but you're just, yeah, you're just not going to beat Virginia if they're shooting that way. And right now it's not relying on one person to get hot like that. Like Walter Tensai last year, that's what maybe he would go six of 10, right? Like this is, this is a whole different thing because Hauser can get hot. Murphy can get hot. Walter Tensai can get hot. Morcel is serviceable uh, here lately from three-point shooting. Kihei Clark is serviceable from three-point shooting. Beekman has his moments. So you're kind of looking at this going, well, maybe we'll let the center shoot. Well, no, that doesn't work either because now Jay Huff is is hitting at a, a mid-40% clip as well, and he's doing it on more volume. That was what it was early in his career, similar percentage, less volume. Now he's popping out where he can hit four per game uh, like he did against the first half uh, of a recent game. So, yeah, the 
the pick your poison thing is difficult with this team, particularly when they invert things. We talked about that last week a little bit with, with Kihei Clark posting up, but when it's inverted and you've got all the bigs away from the basket, suddenly, you know, Trey Murphy driving baseline and dunking, that's an extremely high percentage shot. Kihei getting that first step and, and finishing on the other side of the rim to eliminate any shot blocking. That's a high percentage shot. So yeah, it's fascinating to watch this team grow. And the offense is the really easy part to look at, but they've also given up 35% or less shooting in four of the last six halves. The only two halves where they've given up more than that were in, when the game was over. <laughs> Notre Dame and Clemson were down more than 20 points. And that's when you first started to see some breakdowns when it no longer mattered, right? So there's some signs that that end is also <laughs> rounding into form. And with the rate, the rest of the ACC is struggling a little bit. Virginia's got a one-game lead on everybody or more already uh, with this 5-0 and start. Like, they may be hard to catch unless they go into a little slump of some sort. Well, and the interesting thing to me, too, guys, was, uh, you know, here they were 15 of 27 on threes versus Clemson, and Beekman and Clark didn't hit one. <laughs> the two guards didn't hit one. Marcel was one of three. So the, the three main guards were one for six. I mean, that's just incredible. You, you can't really necessarily count on that going forward, can you? I mean, do you just – what what Clemson was supposed to be this great defensive team. I can see them being a little cold offensively for, for being off so long with the COVID protocols, but w- what the heck happened to their defense? Well, I think, uh, I mean, Hauser and Murphy the third and and Huff are, you know, really the – really all really good shooters and uh as to chris's point and i had mentioned this about huff it seems like he's getting more comfortable in the role of being like the one of the dominant scorers and being aggressive with his shot so yeah i think he's getting more used to taking a higher volume of threes which i think is only going to help his percentage and then murphy's been great i mean he's been phenomenal from three um again i i don't think i don't even know if he hit rim i mean he was he was (laughs) he was five for five and they were all perfect shots and then you know, there were a couple in the second half where, you know, it was kind of early in the shot clock type things, but uh, clearly he's, he deserves to have the green light for sure. Uh, but, and, but, you know, he, he kind of took it early in the shot clock, but drained him. He was, so he's been phenomenal. And then, you know, Hauser has been struggling, uh, but, uh, you know, hopefully, as he mentioned, that hopefully the uh, Clemson game will be kind of a, a kickoff point for him. And I think most people will just expect him to do well. So, so I don't think the strength, uh, of the three-point shooting necessarily is in the three guards in terms of Be- uh, Beekman, Clark, although Clark, I would, you know, you could certainly be up there, but certainly Beekman and Morcell, as I mentioned last week, I think it's going to be important for those guys to step up and be key. Or if you have a guy like Thomas Waldo Tensai who comes off the bench and we've seen what he can do if he starts off hot. I mean, we saw that last year. And so he was able to kind of duplicate that against Clemson as well. And he really was the guy in the first half that kind of got things rolling from that standpoint and helped UVA really um, uh, extend its lead. One thing I was thinking about though, especially in the first half, I mean, I think the second half UVA just had that blitz and then, you know, really Clemson kind of just faded away. But as far as Clemson was very physical uh, uh, defensively, to st- you know, especially to start the game. I thought they came out with some some intensity. And how big is Reese Beekman to have this year as far as just another point guard? Because I just kept thinking in my mind, if, if there was no Beekman and it's just Kihei Clark as the main point guard, that's a lot to handle against a physical athletic team that, he, you know, we're going to see more of those guys those types of players. So I think having Beekman as another point guard, extremely reliable point guard out there on the floor is, is, is crucial. And that's going to pay 
uh, dividends as well uh, as we move forward. I just remember last year trying to use Thomas Walter Tensai in the cage and to bring the ball up and things like that. And, you know, he's an okay ball handler, but he's not what Reese Beekman is, is proving to be. So I think Beekman's contributions are, you know, becoming extremely significant. And I think we're seeing that in his minutes that he's getting. Murphy seems to have a, a pretty good handle too, a good kind of third guy to <laughs> bring it up against the press. Yeah, I mean, if he's your four, or if Hauser's your four, the whichever way you want to flip it among those starters, that's a plus ball handler at the four. Um, it just is. And then you throw in Jay Huff, right? Who's a plus ball handler at the five. Th this lineup is interesting. You know, Beekman, I gave Chris Kudos last week for saying Hauser was going to be the uh, leading rebounder. You know, I, I was on the uh, MVP of the others train with Beekman because it just fits. And now you're seeing, seeing why, because he's ahead of the curve defensively from even where any of us thought. We thought he would be good defensively or at least serviceable defensively. He's way ahead of the curve there. He was one bucket shy of them having six guys in double figures. He had eight. And it's been different guys being the fifth, right? Morcel was the fifth once. Walden Sensai was the fifth once. And Beatman was the fifth once. So having that additional playmaker out there is huge. And, you know, it's easy to look at the shooting, the high percentage shooting, all that. But the thing that jumps off the page to me is 22 assists on 34 made shots. They were, they were assisting on practically every shot that was made. And it wasn't just the simple kind where you pass it to the wing and Trey Murphy lights it up. There were some of those, right? But there were a lot from Huff, career high five assists, hitting backdoor cutters, right? Because Clemson, as Chris said, was out there. They're, they're, they're on it. They're pressuring and things like Florida State will do here in a few weeks, that kind of thing. And boom, backdoor, Jay Huff can see over everybody, uh, zips that pass in there and they're getting easy ones at the basket. So between Beekman, Clark, and Huff, 16 of those assists six five and five among those three players yeah i mean if you're gonna if you're gonna have shooters and great passers and the floor is spaced because of those shooters you're, you're gonna have good shots if everybody's willing to share the ball in that manner 22 assists on 34 baskets is almost impossible to stop as a defense you know you, you can contest shots but if they're gonna make contested shots which some of those were I, what else can you do <laughs> there, there's not a whole lot left right the, the question here becomes on the nights where that's not doing that, when that's not happening, can Virginia win games? And we've seen signs of that lately as well. So, yeah, excited about what's to come. Obviously, we, we don't know exactly how all of this is going to play out, but uh, to be 9-2, and two, two games away from the qualifying mark, you have to get to 13 games to qualify for the tournament. I like where Virginia is sitting right now. And atop the ACC, two guys, Louisville lost to Miami. So, 4 in the was. conference, and <laughs> there we are. There we are. So another thing I've been encouraged by, guys, is, you know, there were a couple games there where Morcel was out with the COVID uh, protocols and things. Shedrick has, has been under the weather, I guess, here of late and hasn't played really at all. McCoy has been playing much less than he did at the beginning of the season, and Kafaro has been playing a little bit more. So even with kind of all those fluctuations and people maybe not even playing – Whereas they were seeing significant time earlier, we've been able to kind of navigate all those ins and outs and, and have been, you know, trending up even with all of that. So do you contribute that to the strength and kind of the chemistry between the starting five maybe, or um, just overall everybody being more comfortable with each other? I've always been impressed with how coach Bennett just has that as part of his program, right? It seems like somebody's ready all the time. Yeah, so think back to that Louisville game where Marco Anthony played extremely well and basically his only significant action before he transferred, right? Like, yeah, he played some, but that was his significant kind of signature game while he was here. And he was ready. He made the plays when the time came. Kafaro here the last couple of games. It's not that he's lighting it up points-wise, but he's been very solid. 
passing out double teams, great defensively, physical, which is what you expect out of him. So it doesn't seem to matter. Walter Tensai took a game off and comes in. Now he's four out of six. <laughs> Didn't take the game off. He got a DMP coach's decision, right? But was still bought in. Man. And, and, yeah. and said openly in the post-game media, like, yeah, I wasn't mad about it. That's Virginia basketball in a lot of ways, right? And that's often one of the most impressive things to watch year to year is you're watching all this get molded together and then they hit a little hiccup and suddenly somebody else is usually ready, right? Ready to go when the time comes. Ty Jerome, late in his freshman year, had barely played, shows up at that Villanova game. It always seems like the next guy is ready. And, and that's really, really impressive uh, just watching it from a coaching standpoint. Yeah, I think, uh, well, it's interesting to me. I think uh, Walter, since I following the Clemson game, and I think Hauser may have mentioned this as well, just how competitive the things, uh, the practices are. And I think, so guys are truly having to earn their minutes there. And so practices are, you know, just as it sounds like are just as competitive as games. And it seems like the players understand that and they're all working hard in practice and, and practices are not easy and they're competitive and that's preparing them extremely well for the game. So I think, uh, yeah, clearly, you know, coach Bennett's got his formula and, and that's a big part of it, I think is, is, you know, that, uh, you know, you really have to work for work for the playing time. And yeah, Kafara has been interesting. Um, my, I'd like to hear your take on Chris on, on why Kafaro as opposed to maybe Justin McCoy, but I think he has been, you know, fairly solid. His passes, by the way, are like, I mean, they're rockets. <laughs> when he throws them from underneath the basket. I mean, you gotta, you gotta be ready to catch those. I mean, they're pretty, uh, coming at you pretty fast, but you know, he, he's, he's shown some things, you know, at least last year, you know, coming in and in spot like against North Carolina, uh, being ready to play uh, to kind of Chris's point, um, you know, guys coming in, um, ready to play you know I suspect if Shedrick is healthy when he's healthy he'll be kind of the guy behind Huff just because of his athleticism but yeah Kafaro is doing well and and again overall I think it's just the the competitive competitiveness within the practice within the team just to get minutes I think you're seeing that play out on the court and then again yeah guys just the new guys getting more comfortable with what they're doing I thought it was interesting Chris coach Bennett mentioned after the game also talking about the defense how they made some subtle changes uh, to help um, alleviate where you know teams were uh, exploiting them so he didn't get specific I was wondering if you noticed anything specific as to what he may be talking about that yeah I'm sure it's within the pack line defense but like um, you know what he may be referring to that maybe we would see on a normal year but they've had to maybe adjust to yeah they've been playing a box and one that, that that's the jet no, <laughs> the, uh, the uh it is, it's subtle. To me, what I'm seeing, and I may not be right, but what I'm seeing is more flat hedges, so level, what he calls leveling off hedges versus a hard show or a hard hedge where they jump out in front of the ball handler. You're seeing not 100% level hedges. They're mixing it up, but more often. And to me, that's the Mike Toby, Anthony Gill vibe, um, which happened a little bit that year as well, where they started to level off screens not not play what I call catch defense. In the NBA, sometimes you'll see not leveling off of screens, but the screener's defender playing back in the in the paint and catching the dribbler as he dribbles to the basket, right? This is more leveling off even with the screener instead of jumping out in front of people. And then some selective switches. You know, they can't switch everything like they could at times with certain lineups on the championship year. Certain lineups in the championship year, they just switch them all when it was Diakite and Hunter and and even with Guy as kind of the fifth, that when Kihei Clark or Salt wasn't on the floor, they would switch them all, right? They're switching selectively at times now. So to me, those are the two main changes. And there may be other ones going on too, where they're sending a different person to, to help or a different person to do this. Like 
those are a little harder to pick up unless you've seen the, you know, the specific adjustments or whatever, but there's, this is not unusual. There's constantly little adjustments going on. I remember Joe Harris telling me that back during his career, I asked him, I was like, are, are there little things going on in the pack line more than we might realize? And he goes, oh yeah, we're always adjusting opponent specific uh, positioning and that kind of thing. So there's base rules and then things they do to make it work. Yeah. And just uh, to play off of that question, uh, Chris, hedging is fascinating to me because it does seem like so many teams are defeated just with that simple, you know, whether you hard hedge or soft hedge or whatever, it's like the guard goes all the way out to practically half court and they're totally screws up their offense. Like it just seems like such a simple thing that aren't there other ways for team. And meanwhile, there's a guy wide open on the other side of it. Like it just seems like offenses have, that just causes them fits. <laughs> yeah. Right. I say wide open from the TV view when right. you're floor yeah. level, it doesn't look quite as open, <laughs> right? Like when Huff's the guy hedging, right? <laughs> right. Huff's the guy hedging, but also like, okay, Casey Morsell, he doesn't mm-hmm. seem that tall. His wingspan was six, nine when he was uh, at the U 17s for team USA. So if it's Clark, Morsell, Murphy, Hauser, Huff. Yeah. It may look open on TV. I'm telling you at floor level, it just isn't that easy to see. Right. So yeah. Listen, team, teams have choices to make. One of the ways they like to attack the pack line is ball screen offense. And the reason they do it is because it takes one of the five players out of the pack, you know, by rule, if you hard hedge, they're no longer in the pack. So if you yep. can beat it or you can split it or you can pop out of it, uh, there's one less pack player to help. Right. So that's the theory. The problem is it's really hard to execute, right? So Virginia jumps out in front of it. They're big, they're long, they're closing your passing windows, and they're very good at moving on the flight of the ball. So even if you go to, you know, you retreat dribble to get away from that hedger and you go to throw it over top to that wide open guy, by the time the ball goes all the way across the court, that's where Virginia's as good as anybody, is that reaction (laughs) to be there on time. Their closeouts are good, their hands are high. So the other way that teams attack the hedge that I think is the most successful is what I call uh, uh, attack the recovery. Okay. So you bring the hedger out, he hedges, you kill it out toward half court. Like you're saying the hedger turns around to go recover yeah. dribble right down his back. You see teams yeah. do that. So that's one to watch mm-hmm. for as a fan. Like if it, dri- it drive, drive the recovery, that's where Virginia can have some breakdowns at times because it's hard. You got one guy recovering and others are, the other option is yeah. skip passes, flare screens, things like that, where you mm-hmm. shift the pack and then throw it away from the back. Mm-hmm. Those are kind of the main ways that teams try to attack it other than the dribble drive. Virginia's just good at it. I've said this on the message board several times this season. We have to stop treating the pack line like it's some sort of mystical, you know, m- movie power that they've discovered and brought back here. It's not that. <laughs> it's just that they're really stinking good at it. And it's because Coach Bennett makes them be good at it. They won't accept subpar right like watch other teams play they're not dedicated to making that next rotation as often they just aren't right so that's what makes it good not the scheme i bet i i I really think he could play two three zone and still be good defensively because of his demands defensively it's not the scheme Mm -hmm. although that's a huge part of it um it's yeah it's it's what they make guys do (laughs) to earn time on the floor well, and talking about Marcel, I mean, it was great to see him back in the lineup. Six of seven against Notre Dame, three for three on threes, 15 points overall. I believe he was the player of the game. And, and then Thomas was the player of the game uh, on the radio broadcast for uh, for Clemson. So, man, if those two guys get it going, I, I think that's where we, we get into that 
you know, preseason number four expectations level, right? Chris Horn, are, are those two of the most key guys in your mind too? Yeah, I mean, I still think, yeah, Beekman, Beekman certainly is up there. But, yeah, I mean, Morsell, um, with what he can bring to the table from an athletic standpoint, and Chris mentioned his his wingspan. Yeah, I think he is getting – he seems to be getting more confident. I'm still kind of probably in the wait-and-see mode, you know, just because, you know, guys who, you know, have some struggles in terms of mentally like he did as a freshman, you know, you kind of want to see them string together more than just, you know, one or two games. But I think he seems to be getting more comfortable out there and, you know, I, I just remember him back in high school. He was such a competitive guy, and he was kind of the guy for his team. I think he was just really one of, like, one of the main – he was the main get, kind of go-to guy, I and mean, everything kind of flowed through him. And so – but I think he's uh, – he seems to be getting more confident, so that's going to be key. I still think, you know, you're going to see, like, him and Reese Beekman and those guys get those open shots uh, because teams are going to have to I mean, focus on Hauser, Huff, Murphy, uh, and even Kihei Clark. Um, so they're going to have their opportunity. So if they, whether it's those guys or if, I mean, it's going to be super nice if Walter Tensai can come and be consistent off the bench, provide that shot, especially that shot in the arm offensively um, as well. So, yeah, I think all those guys are going to be important. And then, you know, just from a defensive standpoint, I think it's just about just getting uh, more and more consistent. Uh, I know Coach Bennett mentioned after the Clemson game that he still hasn't seen two defensive halves, you know, of, you know, great defensive basketball in both halves, which is what he's striving towards. And I think that's really going to be the key uh, for, for this team. And I, but, I, but I think they are getting better, and uh, that's, you know, that's obviously huge. And then yeah, from an offensive uh, standpoint, they seem to be really settling in. So, but, yeah, I think those guys are definitely going to be extremely important just to, to round out things for UVA. Well, uh, this upcoming week, a little bit in flux. So we'll just get into our uh, next segment and talk a little football. Wide receivers looking ahead to uh, the upcoming year next here on the Saber.com podcast. It's your number one online source as a Virginia fan, the Saber.com. Into the second segment here on the Saber.com podcast, Jeff Sweatman joined by Chris Wright and Chris Horn. And pretty cool to have a guy like Mike Kaiser on the number one defense in the NFL, even though the Rams came up a little bit short, always tough to play at the frozen tundra of Lambeau Field uh, in the playoffs, especially. But uh, Juan Thornhill moving on with the Kansas City Chiefs. They went over the Browns. So best of luck to him and them. And we're going to talk about wide receivers looking ahead to the who's this coming year. And, uh, well, uh, Chris Horn, what can you tell us? Well, I think uh, a lot of promise for sure. I think Lavelle Davis Jr. Um, gave fans reason to be pretty excited uh, with what his skill set, uh, six seven, athletic, uh, fast, can uh, and, and dedicate. I mean, from everything we've seen, he's uh, hungry to be uh, a star receiver. So I think that gets you excited there. Um, you know, the return of Dontavian Wicks, who missed the season with, I believe, a foot injury. Um, this past year. Now, he, coming into last season, he was going to be the guy who was going to uh, get everybody excited and or that everybody was excited about because of his combination of athleticism and size and his potential. Um, unfortunately, he uh, missed the uh, season with the injury. So hopefully he can come back healthy. And then, you know, those two guys right there, you know, that, that gives you reason alone to be excited. But then also Billy Kemp, the fourth, um, I thought he took it. Uh, you know, I like the way he embraced his you know, he, he was, they needed him to step up and be 
more uh, than he was the, the previous year. And he did. I thought he embraced that role. But I think at the same time, uh, he's going to be even better if UVA can have two consistent uh, athletic guys to take some pressure off of him. Then I think, and I think we saw a little bit of that against uh, Virginia Tech with what he. I think he's going to be able to do if Virginia has more consistency from 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 the outside guys. But yeah, I mean, this past season coming in, I think that was an area that we were kind of concerned about, which was where how are they going to replace Hasis Dubois, Joe Reed? You know, Terrell Jano was coming back, and, and Billy Kemp, but Dubois and Joe Reed were such uh, major parts of the success that they had in 2019. How were they going to replace them? Well, you know, I think Jana didn't have the type of season we were expecting. Billy Kemp uh, played played well, but again, uh, you know, and, and Lavelle Davis Jr. Showed, showed some things, but just in terms of overall production and consistency, um, certainly it was a step down from what they had with uh, Dubois and Reed. So, But next year, there's going to be a lot of promise, uh, again, with those two guys. And then you factor in the, the kind of, um, the, you know, the, the tight end position with another uh, big receiving target and Jelani Woods coming in at 6'7". That should help take some of the pressure off some of these young guys as well. So another guy, you know, kind of looking towards next year, Rayshon Henry is coming back. He kind of started to pick things up, I think, a little bit towards the end of last season. So we'll see what he can do. He certainly took off in his final year at St. Francis PA uh, before transferring to UVA as a, as a grad transfer. But um, yeah, certainly I think there's potential, but it's, you know, it's definitely not proven potential yet. We just had to see what, uh, what how it's going to play out next year, but definitely some reasons to be excited for sure. I think. The interesting part to me is kind of that middle area that you're just talking about. So uh, not middle of the field, middle, middle in terms of production, you had Kemp catching tons of balls. Uh, that you had Davis and Henry and some guys like that um, who were involved. But a big chunk of the production came from Paul Jan at tight end, 38 catches, and, and Jana, even though it wasn't quite what we thought it would be, 36 catches. Right? That's a lot of balls going to those two guys uh, for 830-some yards combined. So if Jelani Woods is not quite the receiver that Tony Paul Jan is, and that could be system-related, Oklahoma State, versus how he'll be used here. So it just remains to be seen. But for now... We're not sure that that's going to be as productive. And then Jana uh, being on the field for three consecutive years, you know, certainly made him a, a producer, right? He was able to get comfortable and do the things out there. So who's in between Billy the Kemp and, you know, these other guys that we just mentioned. But the interesting part about Davis and, and Rayshon Henry was they only had 27 catches combined. So that's not a lot of catches. They were very productive catches. <laughs> Nine of those 27 catches were touchdowns. So a third of the time they were catching touchdown passes, but you need chain movers too and consistent catchers too. And right now we don't know who that's going to be. Could it be Dontavian Wicks or could Rayshon Henry become that in addition to a touchdown? There are lots of, lots of interesting questions about that to me. Who, who are the possession constant catchers other than Billy Kemp? Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you guys. Do you think a guy like Davis is such a weapon, you know, 20 receptions total for the year? I know he was out for a couple of games, but do you feel like some of those guys were underutilized or was that just a factor of their age in the system? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think some of those, as Chris mentioned, some of those catches went to Tony Poljan, who was probably, you know, along with Billy Kemp and, you know, I would definitely throw Terrell Jana in there, more reliable, I guess, uh, targets. Um, uh, but no, I think, uh, you know, as a true freshman, um, and he did, you know, miss a, a game, I believe, um, or, or two, uh, I think, yeah, I think, 
I mean, I think his production was probably, you know, where uh, maybe more than we expected um, uh, from him. It, it's going to be interesting though. Yeah. Again, there's no, there's a lot of reasons to get excited, but not, and that's why I think the the biggest key is going to be, I think, this offseason. So if they can have an offseason of strength and conditioning, go through spring practice, then I think that's going to be really key. Um, and that kind of remains to be seen at this point. So, But I think that's something that's needed to kind of obviously, you know, a guy like Davis Jr. needs to get stronger. Uh, you know, if Wicks can get healthy, um, I think he had, you know, he probably got a lot of work with Brennan Armstrong during his true freshman season uh, in 2019. So if he can, can come back healthy, I expect there's probably a good, you know, chemistry with him and uh, Brennan Armstrong. And, uh, you know, Dave, same with Davis Jr. coming back. I think there's probably some good chemistry there, but it's just going to kind of remain to be seen who's going to be the guy to step up. You know, Tavares Kelly Jr. has always been a guy that we've kind of been waiting to see him step up at some point. Um, in terms of production and usage, and it just never happened. Um, but he's, you know, he's still on the roster. He's a guy with experience, and he's got that speed and athletic tools, so he could be a guy to watch as well. Um, but yeah, and, and then Rayshon Henry as well. So it, it'll be interesting to see if they look to try to add, to to add to that position this off season. Maybe add an experienced uh, guy who can who can come in and and and, and really help you know the younger guys. But uh, but again, it is definitely like a kind of a mix of stuff to get excited about but also kind of a little apprehension because we're just not sure at this point who are who are going to be those dependable guys that we can count on next year i think that this position is fascinating kemp and davis i think are givens and then i think there's a whole lot of how do you what, what do you do next is it wicks does he step forward um like people thought he was going to it looked like he would Tavares Kelly, can he stay healthy? He's got the Britton Nelson thing going on offense where, I mean, he only played five games this year. He, he just doesn't stay healthy. He doesn't. Ugo Abasi, same thing, doesn't stay healthy, right? So you got guys like that. Keaton Thompson is a receiver, technically. I know we move him around and we talk about him every week, no matter which position we're talking about, right? But he's <laughs> technically a receiver. So he only had seven catches. So his value is more as a running receiver or a running quarterback or whatever. But how does playing it full time particularly if shoulder surgery takes away any of the off season at all, which we don't know yet. How does he mix in? Starling freshman played this year, had some moments, but nothing glaring. The name we've heard pop up um, at least when uh, doing the podcast with, with the, uh, the lockdown guys, uh, Tony Covington and Ahmad Hawkins, Nathaniel Beal has apparently turned some heads in practice here and there. So he's another tall lanky type in the, the Davis uh, Wicks kind of vibe. Who is it? Who is it? That, that makes this position very interesting to me, right? Like who, who could it be? Is it, is it Rayshon Henry who is, instead of going out and get another receiver, he gave you two years instead of one, you expected one. Now he's staying. Is he the guy that's the grad transfer a year later that goes, listen, these four touchdown catches on seven target or seven total catches were not a fluke. It was just that, you know, this year, COVID, this, that, the other, no off season, the weird, the weirdness of everything and coming in late because of being a grad transfer, does he step forward? Yeah, I'm, I'm very fascinated by this position because they're going to throw the ball a lot unless the system completely changes, right? So if you're going to throw the ball a lot, somebody's going to be getting these catches. Who's it going to be? That, that's fun to think about. And, well, the, if they go after somebody in the grad transfer or regular transfer market, if the, if they, especially if they had that one-time transfer rule, and that could that could maybe be part of our answer. Maybe the coaches aren't sold 
on who is on the roster that they're going to have guys who are um, dependable coming back. And yeah, I mean, there's a lot of guys who have been interesting. I mean, <laughs> Ugo Abasi was interesting coming out of high school um, and had, had a lot of talent was, was pretty highly regarded. Just hasn't been able to stay healthy as Chris mentioned, same with Tavares Kelly. Uh, yeah. Keaton Thompson is, is a guy that is going to be interesting to see, you know, he played that slash role. So do they try though to, you know, this off season to kind of mold him more into a receiver, you know, I expect they're going to still keep the slash responsibilities for him because he is such an effective runner, but which way do they kind of tilt the majority of his work is, are they going to try to really make him into the best receiver he can be, but also include him in some run, or are they going to maybe try to make him because I mean, he's a pretty dynamic runner. You know, do they maybe see him more as a guy running the football rather than receiving the football so yeah lots of lots of options and that's why it's going to be if they don't get a spring football that's going to be that's going to uh, you know hurt hurt that aspect of, as far as you know, i think uh where where things go but yeah it's 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 very interesting but a lot of guys you know nathaniel beal was a guy coming out of high school six five you know one of those always open guys like uh, bronco mendenhall likes to say um he's just got that height and size so he yeah he's he's another guy to to watch out for he had a knee injury that kept him out of his true freshman season but uh, was able to come and at least see the field last year so that should be helpful but again no no you know billy kemp and lavelle davis jr are really the most proven guys in terms of production and then you know jelani woods we'll see um you know as chris mentioned oklahoma state could just be a system where they are more receiver friendly rather than tight ends but you know the fact is tony poljan when he got here he had just come off a season where he had 30 plus catches as a tight end jelani woods hasn't done that yet so is he going to be able to make that transition if they try to if they want to continue that type of production from the tight end position is he going to be ready for that so <laughs> it's a lot of kind of like uh you know you want to get excited but it's like what's going to happen. We're not, we're not sure, but I mean, I think certainly Armstrong is going to have some interesting weapons at his disposal uh, next year. And then the offensive line coming back intact and uh, you know, if they can build upon their a pretty solid pass blocking uh, that they showed this year, then you know, they're going to at least have the, I guess, infrastructure in place for Armstrong to be successful as a passer this year and just need those receivers to step up. Perfect time for my, rant that comes up sometimes let's not rotate so many guys in and out you know i bring this up either here on the podcast or on the message board or on radio interviews from time to time like i understand why you have to rotate guys i do but maybe not quite as often within a series or something like that could you at times go kemp davis wicks henry four wideouts between kemp davis wicks henry figure out who the linebacker has and attack that guy, <laughs> right? Can, can you set up situations where that's what's happening um, where, you know, whoever's on the interior in particular, right? So uh, Tony Covington was really big on, uh, listen, Lavelle Davis is a problem when he's in the slot. That's the way he put it. He's a problem, <laughs> right? And this is a, a former defensive guy, defensive back saying, listen, when you put that dude in the slot, you can create all kinds of problems but only if the other weapons on the field are also significant. So to me, if you could mix certain ones together to put pressure on the defense and then get a linebacker matched up against a, a Davis or a Keaton Thompson, even if it's on a short pass, linebacker one-on-one -on -one against Keaton Thompson, if he can kind of develop that part of his game, even if it's one of those simple swing pass deals we just see with, with Pierman back in the Al Groh days, you, you start getting intrigued by what could happen 
but that's going to require keeping certain personnel out there together in my mind. And they don't do that enough, uh, in my opinion. Yeah. It's, uh, good to have options though, of course, as always. And, you know, I can see in terms of options, maybe like trips to the left side and then running a naked bootleg with Armstrong around the other, where the defense is so focused on all these great receivers to one side. And then you run something to the other side of the field. I don't know. What do I know about any of this? Well, the naked I'm, bootleg. I am in favor of that. <laughs> I hate the bubble screen and I hate the pick plays. Yeah. It, but, well, uh, as long as they get rid of uh, Brennan Armstrong doing the lob pass to Billy Kemp, uh, that needs to go. I think we saw that a few <laughs> times. I'm not sure what was going on on that play, but um, all right. But but that but Kemp is a guy that I mean, and I agree. I think you know putting moving Lavelle Davis Jr. around, like especially in the slot, is definitely something that I think is is. Uh, is a good thing. But as far as Kemp, I think his, he is most dangerous as a guy, I think in the slot as like an, coming out of the backfield, like lined up against those safeties and linebackers. Cause I think you saw when he went against corners that, you know, many times I think he had trouble, some trouble getting separation, but you know, when he's in the able to work the middle of the field, um, you know, I think he's, he's got that speed and he's, he, he can, he's shown that he can make big plays. And again, I kind of go back to the Virginia tech game where remember him making big plays like that coming out of the backfield or in the slot and things like that. So, you know, hopefully some of these guys who will be, you know, more traditional receiver guys I'm talking about will be able to step up and emerge and be consistent, which would allow him to, I think, to really do what he's best suited to do, which I think is to be working that middle of the field against linebackers and safeties. Yeah, unfortunately, Jeff, they don't bootleg the quarterback very much. So yeah. um, a little harder to do, I guess, from, from shotgun than from under center. But that's just not something they do is is move the quarterback in that manner where it's play action and bootleg around out of it. So to me, what I would like to see is leave once per half, maybe like per half. So four times per game instead of a designed quarterback draw tunnel screen to Billy Kemp. Now, I know you don't like them, but. Every time they threw the screen to Kemp this year, it got six to That's 10 yards. Why I hate it. Right. So <laughs> sub- substitute one quarterback run per it half. It works and every one, time, right? <laughs> right. And one jump ball per half with that instead. Right. Yeah. So if you did two of those per half, that would be 48 catches <laughs> for the year over 12 games. Yeah. He averages 9.6 yards a catch this year. It's a possession throw, it's an easy throw for Armstrong. It's a way to mix it up. It stretches things horizontally, and then maybe you pop one up the seam on a fake, t- uh, a fake, a fake tunnel yeah. screen or whatever, right? I, I would just try to build off of that play more because it seems to work every time they run it, right? And you can yell at the TV while it's happening, <laughs> you know, like, oh no, not a tunnel. Okay, at least they got eight yards. It, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's my team. I love them, but uh, no, it's it is funny how how you describe it that way. Um, because it just seemed, yeah, it's just one of those plays. That's that's why everybody runs them. But do you, do you guys look around the rest of the ACC at all, or are you kind of tunnel focused on what Virginia needs to do to get better? Because you know I'm seeing North Carolina's not going anywhere, but up. Miami seems to be back on the right you know trajectory for their program. Tech obviously is in a little bit of a lull, but um, you know we just couldn't couldn't pull out that Commonwealth Cup again and hang on to it, of course, but. You know, see, they, it's tough sledding there on our side of the ACC, isn't it? Right. Yeah, they did away with the Coastal Division this year, right? This right. past year. Right. We'll we'll see what's coming down down the pipe here as, as football kind of cycles back around. But 
the one thing we know about the coastal division is it, it's wild. <laughs> it's wild. <laughs> Everybody's a 50, 50 game. Yeah. Right. So even when it looks like somebody's rising and somebody's falling and it seems like every couple of years, it's, it's two different teams flipping it on its head or, or one team makes a run or whatever. Right. Yeah. So I don't, yeah, I look at those teams and I agree with you. Miami seemed to be better last year. Howell's back for another year with Carolina. And as long as he's there and can throw 500 yards on any given Saturday, <laughs> um, they're a threat. Right. So uh, Georgia Tech looked better this year. So yeah, that side is, is fascinating because it feels like a lot of 50, 50 games, a lot of Saturdays, and that can lead to a whole lot of topsy turviness and hashtag go ACC uh, posts <laughs> on Twitter, right? Because the coastal is what makes go ACC. That's <laughs> that hashtag is born out of coastal chaos. So yeah, I agree with you, but I just don't think it's, that's one of those things. I have no idea how yeah. to predict. <laughs> yeah. Chris Horn, what do you think in terms of the, as you're keeping an eye on the recruiting landscape, you know, are, are you sort of, you have one eye on the who's and another sort of looking at, what these other teams are doing? Yeah, I mean, I think, well, this year, you know, for UVA, obviously their best class in the Mendenhall era and uh, first, I believe, top 30 national class since 2013. So I think that's a sign that certainly Virginia is starting to make some noise nationally, um, and, but uh, but also, you know, and maybe more importantly in the state of Virginia, that players in the state are taking UVA seriously. So they were able to, uh, you know, sign the most guys in state this year uh, of any guys. And again, they weren't just, you know, it wasn't just quantity, it was quality. They had five top five or players who were ranked in the top five in the state, according to 247 Sports and Rivals, which are the national recruiting outlets. But, you know, you got to keep up certainly the success. And yeah, to Chris's point, the the coastal is is crazy. You never know what's going to happen. And UVA, you know, they, they have some areas to shore up. You know, I think certainly defensive back comes to mind uh, for, for sure is uh, you know, they have some areas that have been weaknesses, you know, for the past yeah, year, year and a half that they need to shore up to continue that success. So, but again, I think recruiting is going well. Uh, one thing that stu- stood out to me that caught my attention, I mean, obviously Clemson uh, is, is big, but North Carolina, you know, Mac Brown's always had a reputation as a recruiter and here he is back uh, and he's doing it again. He keeps on uh, landing those recruits and, and just looking in the state of Virginia in terms of the class of 2022, only two players have committed so far um, out of the top 15, and they're both committed to North Carolina. And North Carolina is also very much in the running with uh, several other uh, top prospects in the state. So Mac wow. Brown's doing it again. <laughs> I think people doubted, yeah. didn't know if he could do it, you know, with his age coming back, but he, he's doing it. And, you know, he's got some, you know, members of his coaching staff like Dre Bly, who are, you know, very familiar with in, in, in Tidewater area. So, you know, he, he's having success and, but hopefully, you know, for Virginia that this past season was a sign of things to come rather than an aberration. And, you know, we'll, we'll have to see what you – know, they'll have to string together a few really good in-state classes, I think, to see what happens there. But definitely a promising sign this past year. Well, and Chris Horn, too, there's a, a local recruit that's been making some waves, it sounds like, uh, with Bronco saying some nice things about him recently. Yeah, I mean, keeping with the receiving uh, receiving conversation, uh, Malachi Fields, another big receiver, 6'4", 200 pounds. He plays quarterback at Monticello High School. But uh, Coach Mendenhall had an interesting story about him. He went to see his son play Mon- against Monticello, and, and Malachi Fields caught his attention. He was like, wow, this guy's a special player. And so he specifically mentioned him as his, like, sleeper of the class or maybe a guy that people aren't expecting to – 
do a whole lot, but uh, or maybe not initially anyway. But uh, he's definitely a guy to watch out for with his athletic talents. Again, and it was interesting. They have like five or five or six guys who played quarterback in high school. So it'll be interesting to see how that translates um, to the next level. You know, obviously a couple of them are going to play quarterback, uh, uh, Jacob Rodriguez and Jay Wolfolk. But uh, but they have other guys, uh, you know, Jonas Sanker, who's also a local guy, Malachi Fields. Uh, Aiden Ryan, uh, Javin Burke, you know, all those guys are going to be receiver defensive back types. So it'll be interesting to see as far as their knowledge of the game, uh, how that translates. But yeah, Malachi Fields. Um, yeah, Chris, I didn't know if you he- have heard anything through the grapevine as far as his sleeper potential, but maybe another, you know, Lavelle Davis Jr. didn't get a whole lot of pub coming in, but we saw what he can do. So it's interesting. I took note that Mendenhall is pretty excited about him. I vaguely remember that being unsolicited. Mm-hmm. Like Mendenhall bringing up that he's maybe the sleeper of the class versus yeah. being asked who is the sleeper of the class. <laughs> right? yeah, the, yeah, um, right. yeah, there's a little bit of uh, murmurs, you know, just that when maybe um, some in- informal workouts or whatever locally, because he's a local kid, has impressed some some current college players, right? Like, oh, uh, yeah, this kid might be something to watch out for. So we'll, we'll see. It, it has to translate. It's hard to translate summer informal seven on seven workouts are not the same thing as playing football. Um, so, so we'll see, but again, you're right. Lavelle Davis jr. Started popping up, started popping up uh, in the preseason a little bit. You mentioned him here and there, and then all of a sudden he's jumping over top of dude. So yeah, we'll, we'll see, but definitely a good athlete and uh, one that Mendenhall singled out specifically uh, essentially unsolicited during the, the signing day stuff. Well, very good. We will talk about a uh, special musical project I'm involved in and uh, how it relates to John Prine and the local music scene. That's our uh, Turning the Tables segment next here on the Saber.com podcast. The Front Porch is a nonprofit roots music organization, and we uh, connect everyone through music. I like the way that the Front Porch encourages people to, to sort of engage with their community and sort of enlarge the community. Everybody's included, and that's really what the word community is about, you know, making sure that everybody has their chance to have a good time and and participate and add something. All right, welcome back to the Turning the Table segment of the Saber.com podcast. I am the Saber.com editor, Chris Wright, in the driver's seat, while Jeff Sweatman goes to the hot seat instead. Uh, We talk music at the end to tie it into our uh, off-topic message board that we call the corner and music often comes up on that that page comes up a, every day basically um, and if not daily certainly multiple times a week and we've done a lot of different music you know vibes during this segment over the last 20 some episodes uh, we did one other sort of local new music at one point in the fall but this one is is even more hyper local meaning directly to our host. <laughs> so super local. Uh, t- tell us what you've got going on with a, a John Prine fundraiser. What, what's it for? You know, who, who are you raising money for and, and how can people find it? Yeah, I basically, you know, it was a, a bummer pretty much for anybody who's even slightly a John Prine fan. He, he passed away. He had had some health issues um, kind of late in his life anyway, but um, he passed away from COVID in April and they ended up doing like a, a little mini tribute to him online and kind of created this documentary film with his family and stuff. And it, you know, he just had such an influence on so many different singers and songwriters. And he kind of was, you know, a guy of many genres where he wasn't really folk, but he wasn't really rock. He wasn't really country. He wasn't really blues. He was a little bit, all of that. 
just a great wit and sense of humor. And, you know, at a point, certain point in time, he was seen as maybe like the next Bob Dylan. And he was kind of coming up at the same time Springsteen was. So both of those guys kind of got lumped into, you know, the media trying to find out who the next Dylan was going to be. But, you know, just even if he had only made his first album and that was it, he would have gone down in, in history as a pretty great uh, songwriter. So just so many classic songs um, that became pretty much standards over the years, you know, Angel from Montgomery is probably the most famous. Um, and folks may know the Bonnie Raitt version of that where she sings with John Prine. And I just got to thinking as, as the year went on and, and there was not really much relief in sight uh, for a lot of my local musician friends who were, you know, missing out on gigs and, and, you know, various things weren't able to, to make much money. So I tried to kind of use the time that I had to, um, to put together something that was as safe as it could be in, in this environment. And so I was relying on a lot of people with home studios basically <laughs> to, uh, to put together a tribute. And I, I've always kind of wanted to make a record anyway of some kind. So all the forces kind of aligned and, uh, yeah, all the best from six feet away is, is what I came up with. And, and the money goes to the New City Arts Fund, which has already helped out a bunch of different artists of all kinds, not just musicians, but like painters and sculptors too in, in the Charlottesville area. I think they've given out like $48,000 so far. So the, the money raised is going to go towards that. It's on a GoFundMe. So we'll link that in the article format of this and on the message boards as well. So people can contribute if you want. And I know I've seen John Prine's name come up. So somewhat often on the corner message board anyway. So we thought this was a pretty obvious tie-in to let people know that it was going on. And what it says here is basically think of it like a pre-order. So <laughs> if you could contribute a certain amount, then you're going to get this double album, right? A double LP. So let's talk about who's on it. You got uh, Coda from Camomile and Whiskey, John Kelly, uh, Thomas Gunn, the Pollocks, and a bunch of other folks, uh, you know, with local tie-ins, but tell us some of the, some of the folks that are on it. Yeah. Yeah. Michael Clem, you know, he, he's got a lot of fans in the, the DC area, but he's based here. Devin Sproul, you know, she's toured all over the world and, uh, has lived in a few different places, but she's, she's from around here and is back here now. Um, I got, uh, Emily Kresge. I've got Susan Munson, a couple of newer bands on the scene, Box Lunch and Far Away. They're helping out, uh, Davina and uh, Brennan from Wild Common do a great version of Angel from Montgomery. Thomas Gunn is on it. Um, and it's funny too, I've had a, a couple of artists reach out since I, I posted about it, that this thing was happening. A couple of them have reached out and said, hey, can I be on it? <laughs> so um, that's going to be the fourth side. I think this, this is ending up as a, a double record, which is going to be awesome. But uh, but yeah, Rob Cheatham. And it's funny, Sally Rose was going to have uh, John Prine cover on her new solo album anyway. Uh, where she sings with Devin Sproul. So it's a, a beautiful duet of one of the songs from John Prine's latest album. So it does run the gamut from a, a few of the deeper tracks, a lot of the greatest hits, uh, some of the older stuff, and, and a few of the the more recent tracks that he, he made kind of later in his life. So uh, I'm pretty proud of it. And I, I think it's turned out pretty great. Now I just got to get it mastered and made. And uh, I'm hoping to have it out this spring. Again, if you donate at a certain level, you get different things. So t-shirt, double album, or both if you do the bundle. So pretty cool way to get a little something for giving a little something, right? So uh, nice tie in there. What got you to John Prine to begin with? You know, I was kind of late to, uh, my, my folks didn't really listen to him. So I didn't know him growing up. And then one of my first songs that I heard by him, 
I didn't really like all that much. <laughs> so it was the mid nineties and I was still in my grunge phase, but I was just starting to learn about guys like, you know, Lyle Lovett and Steve Earle and it was kind of eclectic, you know, like iconoclastic sort of do their own thing. Don't care about genre. Don't care about airplay sort of artists. And uh, he had come out with an album around that time, which was a comeback album of sorts for him uh, since he had taken a few years away, but uh, you know, he ran his own label you know, his wife was basically his manager uh, for the latter half of his career. And, you know, after seeing him live, especially that really turned me into a fan because he just had that that way with an audience, you know, everybody wrapped in attention and just he'd make these subtle little jokes throughout the show. And just, you know, it was either uh, I think I saw him. He usually had a, a trio lineup uh, with stand up bass and then one other uh, person playing with him and all decked out in suits and you know just classy and uh i don't know it's just something about him it, it really it clicked with me once i kind of went back through and and figured out oh okay that's why this guy is so beloved you know he, he just had a way with words and a way with his fans so pretty relatable guy he used to be a, a mailman and then uh kind of got discovered by Chris Christofferson and the, the rest is history <laughs> it's it's funny that, that you just picked that name i was getting ready to say prolific singer songwriter types um my parents liked the way christopher christopherson spelled his name that's my name is spelled with a k because of that right <laughs> so there's a there's a lure from those types right that that yeah, seemed like yeah. they could sit in your living room and play the guitar and talk to you totally um you know that kind of old americana but not quite americana vibe right you know what i mean so yep. that's a little bit of what we're talking about with john prine and this uh album that jeff is working on so Again, I'll link it uh, in the article and on the message board and link it several times, actually, because we want to, at the very least, create a little word of mouth advertising <laughs> to get the word spreading on it. So um, if you can donate, please do. Uh, if you cannot, please spread the word. And in the meantime, we'll see what reappears on the Virginia basketball front after a 5-0 start. We'll see what happens next. Go Hoos.